Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've gathered three guys for a very focused discussion about one of the year's most exciting horror movies, Ty West, Tyler Bates, and Tim Williams. Now, Ty West is a director who made his name with a string of what I guess you'd call indie horror movies, though I'm not sure that does justice to the kind of auteurist vision he has. With films like The House of the Devil and The Innkeepers, he revealed a truly singular style. He tried his hand at a Western with the wild and woolly In a Valley of Violence in 2016, but returned to his horror roots this year with a pair of movies filmed back-to-back. X, which came out in March, and its prequel, Pearl, which is just hitting theaters now. For those two movies, which both star Mia Goth, West hooked up with indie powerhouse A24, which, as you'll hear in this chat, made a big bet on these two films, and since this chat took place, have now committed to a third film in the franchise. If you like creepy, stylish horror, definitely check them out. Now, a big part of what makes both X and Pearl work is the music, and that's where the two other guys on this chat come in. Tyler Bates is a composer who's worked on music for an incredible array of films, from 300 to John Wick to Guardians of the Galaxy. But he knows horror, too, having worked on Rob Zombie's string of early flicks as well. Bates is also a music producer, having recently done the new Starcrawler album, and he was, briefly, a member of Marilyn Manson. For the more old-fashioned orchestral score for Pearl, he recruited his friend and neighbor Tim Williams, who's contributed to a ton of great film and TV scores over the past decade as well. This chat among these three gets wonderfully granular about the world of film sound. Pearl is a prequel that takes place in 1918, so West wanted Bates to come up with something very old school. That meant real orchestrations and the kind of instruments and musical cues you don't really hear anymore. And it works remarkably well. As we'll hear in this conversation, West really thinks like an auteur. He's concerned with every aspect of his movies, right down to whether the sound of crickets is going to interfere ever so slightly with the score. All of that care definitely shows on screen, and you can hear when these guys talk how much they care about getting things just right. Enjoy. So, Ty... Now that you've seen this screen at the Toronto Film Festival and locally in Los Angeles, and obviously the the premiere screening, how does it feel to see this movie realized? And are you completely happy with it? Or do you feel like there's something we could have touched on that would have made it better? Because to me, I I think it's pretty gosh darn perfect. (laughs) Your own movie is a little bit like hearing your voice on tape. Like I find it all quite... um painful and cringing. That having been said, this is the least traumatizing movie for me to see that I've ever made. Um, Yes, there are things I wish I could, you know, a little more time in this little whatever, but it's nothing that would make a big difference. It's just stuff that you just eventually always give up on. And you're like, ah, 2DB here. And I could have gotten that one thing, whatever, but it's so, it wouldn't mean anything to anyone other than me knowing that I just wanted to have the chance to do it. But this is the rare movie where I've seen it with audiences and I've seen my other movies with audiences and I'm proud of all those movies just the same. But there's something about this movie that is just, I can see it not quite like they can, but I can see it as close to as an audience member as it's ever been. I don't know why that is. There's just something about the movie and maybe it's because the aesthetic is so far outside of the usual norm these days, but it's been a real treat to watch it and see an audience react to it. And I don't sit there and think about all the things I could have done differently. And and I'm very happy with the way it came together. Right. The litmus test I would imagine on this one in particular might be Mia Goth and her response to seeing the film. How does she feel about it? She has the same feeling I do about really not liking watching herself. And this is the one movie because we've watched it together in in several places now where she's 
she's pretty like okay with it. You know, it's always still weird seeing yourself, but I think that she is really proud of the work. And, you know, it's such a commanding performance. I mean, it's so much her movie and it's really been cool to see audiences react to it and really like cheer for her. Yeah. And we've discussed the concept behind the score to Pearl before it was even filmed, but how did you arrive really at that stylistic approach as opposed to something just contemporary dark or something orchestral, but not necessarily embracing the form and the syntax of old Hollywood movie scores? Yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too, because it was not like when we said we're going to do two movies, I was sure this is the way we were going to do this. Part of it was like, once we started making the world, it just kind of became obvious very soon. Because once you started putting all those stuff in the frame and framing it up, it started to be like, this movie's going to need a character in the music that is as vibrant as the photography. And that was like very vibrant. And so it's, I, it, it pretty quickly revealed itself to be like, okay. And I was like hesitant to bring it up to you because I was like, let me make sure because I know it's going to go into this. And we had just finished X. And it's really when I started cutting it together, I think I, I may have dropped in a, a, like some, you know, old sort of temp stuff that was like, let's just see if it does what I think it's going to do. And once you heard this sort of like old romantic orchestral score, it was like, yeah. And, and also I think with X, we were really trying to make a score that didn't sound like anything else. And, you know, while you could say Pearl sounds like, you know, an old style of movie, certainly it doesn't sound like anything else today. And that that was really part of the idea with X and Pearl was to do something that feels like you're not going to get it anywhere else today. I eventually called you and was like, so I think it'd be great if this was actually, you know, a big sweeping orchestral score. And I mean, credit to you because you were just like, yeah, great. I know when you commit to something that that's what we're doing. That's one of the real pleasures of working with you. Besides the fact that you're obviously very intelligent and you know what movie you're making, when a composer works with a director of that mentality and you know the director has the support of the producers, it's fun then. It's like being on a frozen lake and knowing that we can skate on it. And actually, Tim and I have worked together in the past where we've touched on writing in this style. And Tim has done some scores of his own that were uh, embracing some of the, the, like some of the older language of film score. And he came in and, and really helped get us home on this one because uh, we were in such an incredible time constraint. That was maybe the only thing that was a little unnerving. And uh, luckily we had uh, Tim and Greg Preckel who uh, also backed us up and did a, a terrific job helping us get it done very quickly. I think also a big part of X when we were making it was to be craft driven and was to really let you know people who work on movies shine and get to do something that either they do very well or something that they're not often known for doing, but to really embrace the like love of the craft. And so even though I knew it was going to be a big challenge to turn around and do something like orchestral like this, I also, knowing you, I know that, you know, it's one of those things where you can see an opportunity to, uh, to be like, well, if we could do this well, like, of course, this is great, you know, and you can't ignore the music in this movie. It's not like it's sort of like, well, we, we scored it quickly just because it needed music. It's very much a defining element of the movie. And I think for a modern audience who doesn't think about that as much, it's, it's hard to ignore in a movie like this. Well, for us, it was so incredible to be able to write something in a style that was classic Hollywood, because you just, you know, more often than not, it's, can we have a piece of pulse or like, don't give us a theme. And for this, what was so great was to be able to go and create something that was classic, where we could take themes and we could talk about, you know, Tyler and I spoke about weaving the themes through and having a theme for the characters and developing that. 
And the other thing that was amazing for us was, you know, from day one, you said, it's a locked picture. And I can't tell you as a composer how incredible that is, because you can write the best scene you could possibly write with the music, and then it gets cut three or four times, and suddenly the cue doesn't work anymore, and it's lost all its effectiveness. So knowing that the film was locked was such a huge benefit to us, because we could really try and plan out the shape of the score and, you know, work out where to ramp it up and where to pull back. And that's a very rare thing these days to have that. Yeah, I'm such a proponent of music and sound in movies. And by sticking to a locked picture, it, it really gives, because you, you can sort of score a scene in a movie tonally and it can work and make a scene better. Um, but if you are fussing with the picture all the time, you'll never really get it to totally dance with what's on screen. And with a movie like this and a score like this, you know, it was the kind of thing that was like, now when she picks up that prop, the oboe has to do something. Right. And when she spins around, the strings have to do something to comment on that so that it really felt like the characters in the movie were like interacting with the music. And that's not the same for every movie, but certainly for a movie like this, it really would take it to another level. And I'm always very adamant about like, you know, unless there's an emergency, let's lock pictures so that everybody can really like add another layer to the movie rather than just like frantically trying to like combine two things, which is, it, can, it works, but it's not as... Um, it, it doesn't integrate itself in the way that something like this does, where there's so many great moments where there's a specific swell that is aligns perfectly with somebody doing something in the scene. And there's a particular chime on a moment that someone is picking something up and things like that. And the cumulative effect of all that, it just really kind of lets you know that like, or reminds you at the very least that score for a movie is not just music in a movie. To me, it's one of the purest examples of storytelling and emotion that I've been part of as, as a score. Now, we've discussed this a little bit, but it's very, very rare for a director to write and film two movies sequentially. And then, of course, they have two come out within the same calendar year. What was the moment where you and Mia decided to write this film when you were setting up X? And how did the concept to set this in 1919 come about? It's kind of become a bit of the lore of the movie, which has actually been quite a charming, you know, sidebar to the, to the story. But basically we were going to New Zealand to make X and that movie was greenlit. And uh, at the time COVID was at its peak and New Zealand was a safe place to make a movie. And we had spent all this effort from a production standpoint to like get the crew visas and get a crew that was on hiatus of Avatar and line everybody up. And we had all these amazing people and we were spending quite a bit of money building a barn and a bunkhouse and really prepping a location designed specifically to make X at a time and a place that seemed like it could be the only time it could ever happen. And who knows if it would ever happen again, because the future was very uncertain. And so because we had done all of that and because the, the resources had been put into it, you and I did a film years ago called The Sacrament. And when we built the, um, the compound that everybody lives in in The Sacrament, we populated that with extras and we made a whole movie there for four weeks. And day in and day out, we're watching people hang laundry and going in and out of their houses. And then when the movie wrapped, you just tear all that down and throw it away and go home. And that's a very strange feeling. And so knowing about that and knowing about the, the current like climate we were in with with covid it just made sense to me that like is there a way to make two movies and to not waste this opportunity this like incredibly fortunate opportunity we have to be able to make a movie when no one could make a movie 
could we make two movies? And I knew we could from a production standpoint because I knew the second movie would be cheaper, frankly, because we had already built everything. And I knew we had all of the crew and I knew that they would probably want to keep working. But I had to come up with an idea and I didn't want to make a sequel because X is a movie about people go to a farm and then all this horror happens. And I couldn't just send more people to the farm and do it again. Um, and so the only way to use all the same stuff was to think like, well, how could we work with the characters in, in that movie? And um, Mia, who I had cast to play Maxine and Pearl in X, we had been talking a lot about Pearl's backstory because you don't get really much of it in, in X. And we had been talking about it just from an acting perspective. But because of that, I had been thinking a lot about like who Pearl was prior to the X movie. And I thought, well, there's an interesting movie is to take the villain from X and make her the star of a prequel. And when I subtracted years from her life, when you go back 60 years, it just miraculously happens to fall at the peak of the Spanish flu in 1918. And we obviously were going through something similar with, with COVID. And it was a way to make a movie that was like not about COVID, but was relatable to everybody truly on earth at the time. I saw a way in and I knew that A24, like they raised an eyebrow. They were like, that's interesting. And it just became up to me to figure out how to deliver something that was worthwhile doing it beyond just the fact that we could. And so I talked to Mia and I asked her, like, if, if we were to pull this off, would she be willing to stick around for another three months to make a second movie? She said, yes. I went to New Zealand. Before we could get into the country, you had to do two weeks in mandatory quarantine. And I thought in those two weeks, I'm going to write a script. And I wanted to do it with her because um, there was no, she was Pearl. There would be no Pearl movie without her. And so basically I sat in there and FaceTimed with her every day. And we just collaborated on a script. And in those two weeks, we got a draft together. And it wasn't the final draft, but it was the movie. And I came out of quarantine, sent that day 24. And they said, we'll think about it. And we started prepping X. And I just polished it up a little bit. And we went back to them um, and said, like, look, we're getting close to making X. If we were to make this second movie, it will be infinitely better by knowing now. Because we will be able to incorporate it into X. And we will be able to, there's things we could source earlier, Model Ts and stuff that's just going to be tedious to find. We should just get on it. And um, in, in the most amazing, I don't know, career situation in my life, A24 just completely bet on it. We had not shot a frame of X. They loved the script for Pearl. They liked the production plan. And they just said, yeah, let's make two back to back. And so we shot X. And then three weeks later, we turned around and shot Pearl. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of The Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 
101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. Do you like staying in the space of the indie films like A24 and of that ilk as opposed to going for the tentpole ride? I think this mostly makes more sense to me. I mean, I, I like to come up with an idea for a movie and then go make that movie rather than sort of jump onto somebody else's movie. Of course, like never say never. I mean, interesting opportunities are interesting opportunities. And there's, I'm sure, a big tentpole movie out there that would be exciting to me and an experience in life that would be worth doing. But I'm so grateful to A24, not just for this. I mean, we had never worked before. So for them to bet on two movies with me is is bizarre, you know? And so it was, it's a real credit to them and their, their um, dedication to filmmakers. And, you know, we can all speak to this because we worked on these movies. I mean, creatively, they're nothing but supportive. And if if you want to be left alone, they leave you alone. And, and, you know, we were able to lock picture because nobody comes in and tells us not to. You know, they were very much like, if you guys think it's there, carry on because we trust you. It's so unbelievably great to be able to just go after the thing you want to do and see that through and not have people second guessing it the whole time or scared of it the whole time. And so I just feel very lucky to be working with them. And, and I feel the same way about working with you guys. And that it's like, you know, it's just us talking about the movie. And then I send you stuff, you send me stuff and we debate about it and then we finish it. Well, one thing that is great is like you write, you edit direct. And I relate to that with my work experience. Cause obviously I love scoring films and television, but I also am passionate about producing records and writing with artists. And I think, I think that strengthens collaborative experiences among people when you're, you have a, a little bit more depth as far as uh, of experience, which you, which you draw from. And I really felt this year working with you that that was powerful for me. So I'm excited about what you're doing personally. I, I hope you uh, kind of stay in this same lexicon of filmmaking because it's so unique and original and it's a very rare opportunity to create something that is truly a byproduct of our collaborative discussions and you're still while you're very um specific about your storytelling you're very much open to how musically we want to serve that and that's been great uh i know for me and for tim and on ex chelsea wolf you know it was very liberating to be able to embrace your own artistry and bring it into uh your uh style of of filmmaking and storytelling i feel like over this past year ty you and i have been able to establish much more of a shorthand because we're past all the initial interpersonal stuff and it's about like getting down to it and tim and i also have that where we can practically read each other's minds tim definitely uh did an amazing job and and his efforts on on pearl and uh, I'd say took the heavy end of the furniture because he also orchestrated it. He conducted it and he oversaw the final mix of the score, which I think sounds beautiful, especially recording in Nashville. There are limitations to that compared to, say, recording in London or in Los Angeles. And I think you wouldn't you don't hear it or feel that at all in the movie. It sounds really gorgeous. And uh, we're very, very excited about the end result. 
appreciate the opportunity to do something that is so distinct and outside the norm of what's happening in film music right now. I'm curious just how you started to approach it from coming off X. And I mean, obviously, Tim, I know you came in, you know, in between, but I mean, how did for you, technically speaking, when you, you know, we finished a score that was very vocal driven, you know, and, and couldn't be more different, you know, when you sat down and started working on the first cue, and I'm just curious also for you, Tyler, if you're if you're if you're messing around on guitar and coming up with it starting there, or if you start immediately with sheet paper for a movie like this. It's like where like where does it for for you, where does it start from? Because it was such a 180-degree turn. Well, it was a conversation between Tim and I. And honestly, before I got the cue, Tim knocked out like the first bit that ultimately became like our main theme. And when mm-hmm. I heard it, I'm like, that feels right. He's like, Are you sure? I'm like, it feels right to me. I think we need to just share this with Ty and see how he feels about it because we knew that in our minds, the idea was to have an overarching theme that is essentially Pearl's theme that's going to serve the entire movie. Um, there is some twisted version of it and practically every piece of music in the film. And uh, to me, it felt, you know, the thing that, that is, is I think uh, drawn Tim and I together through the years is, is each of our disparate, but deep uh, experiences with many styles of music. And also I think we approach our craft with the authenticity, our relationships with authenticity. And, and I think that that had to be transcendent in this music. And so it wasn't, a facsimile of it wasn't trying to ape a riff off of somebody else. It was really lit, taking in the conversation that we had with you creatively and thinking about some of these classic scores that we love. Cause like, I love the old stuff. Mm-hmm. I you know, Maurice jar, all that stuff. I, I love that. You know, I love uh, Aaron Copeland, you know, just all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, you, you can't help, but love Bernard Herman if you're a composer. So uh it's daunting to even say the name in context with your own task, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, anyway, it was a, it was a fresh opportunity because the two, like the two thousands was a a drone era for scoring movies. Uh Then I've done a lot of action movies and that's a lot of pulsing and drums and smash cuts and musically it serves an important purpose. But in this, it was a chance to start painting, you know, to really work with something that was much more lyrical than most movies allow for. And given that it's a locked picture, you can go much longer lined in your thinking because if you're working on a picture that you know is going to be recut about 40 times, once you get into all the technical stuff like voice leading, like where you might change keys on a cut to continue a scene or a conversation, that gets completely destroyed throughout the process. And I've noticed in my own scores, it happens so late in the game that it just feels sometimes like the the natural flow of the melodies are out of round. And that's just because the way it had to be edited together to hit the most important cuts. So the benefit of of doing that here was amazing. And then of course, when Tim and I initially got together, we discussed it and he had a lot of verve uh, going into this one, not trepidation, right, Tim? I was so excited because it, it just brought all the all the kind of music that I adore, and you know, you kind of hear as you're as you're watching TV, watching old films and things like that. The opportunity to to jump in on that was fantastic. And uh, the thing for me that's so wonderful about working with Tyler and and in in a collaborative uh, environment like this is normally you're sort of 
when you work on a project individually, you're sort of just trying to trust your own judgment and find your way through and find music that you think is right. But the idea, you know, when Tyler and I had that opportunity to work together is you, I can play it for him and he can say, oh, I love this. Maybe here, how don't we try this or and vice versa? It's you don't feel so isolated. And that feedback is critical because you kind of can help, you know, kind of sharpen each other. And, you know, Tyler's been an incredible mentor for me in, in, in the film industry, just uh, um, his depth of experience and, and also just the way he can look at a picture and really understand what the key story is, what the key moments are, what the key tone should be. And, and that's something for me that's I've, I've benefited from and learned from and has been a wonderful friendship and, and, and collaboration. Going back to the, the very first thing you talked about, Tyler, and this is Tim, just because I saw you last night at the New Beverly at that screening, and then I saw you two days ago in Toronto at that screening. What is it like to sit in a theater with, you know, 1,100 people one night or whatever it was, 300 people another night for a, you know, for a movie that's 85 plus minutes of music, you know, going the whole time? It was electrifying. I mean, I know Toronto's rabid about films, which is incredible. I mean, they adore films, you know, I think to a level that you often don't see. It felt like a rock concert, honestly, because everyone was kind of clapping before the thing even started. That's why I love the theater. You don't get that when you're sitting at home watching it with a friend. You don't get that same kind of electricity. And this crowd was so amped and so excited. And then when you hear the laughter and you hear the screams and you hear the reaction in real time, especially for something that you've been looking at on a screen just in isolation or, you know, it's very rewarding. Like it's really exciting to see something connect with people and moments that, you know, I would look at in the film and, and sort of laugh at to hear an entire, you know, audience erupt or, you know, there's moments in the film where they're gasping together at, and they're just completely engaged. It's just the best way to see a movie. There's a very fun sort of feedback loop that the movie gives. And I mean, Mia drives it along, but there's there's so many moments where uh, one in particular is obviously when the monologue is done, you know, and everyone is sort of enthralled by this monologue and either aware that the camera has not moved or cut for six minutes or they aren't aware and they're about to become aware. But when it cuts to Mitzi after that and you, you could, the energy in the theater is like, it's palpable. It's like every single person in that room is like going through something at that moment. And uh, it's, um, it's, it's, that is really interesting. And then I think in talking to people about the movie, Almost everybody, there's a point where when she goes to the dance audition that just universally, everybody's rooting for her to get it. And everyone's very excited about the dance and about that moment. And because of what happens that she doesn't get the part, the, the collective gasp when they say, I'm sorry, but it's going to be a no is, is really interesting because, you know, on paper, you shouldn't like Pearl because she's killed a bunch of people and things like that. But you're just so rooting for her. And then even though you could probably assume She's not going to get it when it when it finally happens and the sort of shoe drops on her there. It's just a it's a I've seen it dozens of times now with people. And it's just a remarkable moment where everyone is just like a, a mixture of and oh, and it's just yeah, it's really fun when when you know the movie is like speaking to people um, and it, and it's it's involuntary. So, you know, it's real. They're not fake. Yeah. Yeah. It's audible, isn't it? And it's like the whole theater to that point. I mean, I'm certainly interested because there's two really amazing dance sequences in the movie. If you want to just share kind of how those came about, it'd be really interesting. Well, there was actually more originally, um, but the idea of Pearl from X is that she's this villain and she's this resentful, you know, envious, jealous person and homicidal and all of these things. And I wanted to just really see her purely be interested in something that, you know, she loved to do. And it was also interesting to me that 
she'd be good at it, but not necessarily great at it. And that was a big thing in all the choreography and stuff was trying to make sure it's like, she should be good at the dances of the day, but there should be a margin of error that it's like, because it's very difficult to succeed at something like that. And I wanted the audience to feel that because it would be so obvious if she was just like, I want to dance and then could dance, or I want to dance and didn't know how at all and was too scared of it. What, what's more close to real life, I think, is being like pretty good at something but maybe not being like world-class at it. And then the, the the people who succeed at it are either people who are perhaps undeserving and given an unfair ability to do it, or are this very, very narrow margin of world-class people. And so it's like the very unfair group to be in. And then the like, in a different way unfair, which is like people who are working every second of their life to do it. And that's a real wake-up call, I think, for anyone in any form of the arts is that it's like, you're either going to be putting in like a hundred hours a week on this and still probably failing and you have to keep going, and you're going to see people who didn't do that just get handed things. And it's going to be psychologically, you know, a lot to deal with. So that was a big part of just the, the storyline of Pearl and, and, and incorporating the sort of show business of it all. I just wanted to see her express herself. And the, the big dance sequence that we do at the audition, it was really great because we had sort of rehearsed that, but I'd never really seen it all the way through. And I hadn't seen it on a stage in the outfits with everybody else. And it was a real trip to see it for the first time and then to have the backup dancers coming in and stuff. And um, we had a great choreographer in New Zealand who, who knew the era very well. And I don't know, it's, a, it's one of those moments in the movie that's like most people's, one of their favorite scenes. And I think that's also a testament to just Mia, you know, carrying you to that point and just you're, you're rooting for her so much. Yeah, she's, she's amazing in that sequence. I remember when that scene came up, when we were watching the film for the first time and we both kind of looked at each other and our jaws dropped because it it's such, a, it's such a, a, a left turn in the movie. You just don't see it coming or expect it. And it's, it's, it's so visually stunning. And uh, I, we had our work cut out in both that and also the scarecrow scene where she's dancing with the scarecrow because we sort of had to create the music retroactively. We had to sort of time it to the dancing and sort of create everything around it, even though there was sort of a, a little bit of piano or there was something there that was definitely challenging to make it feel organic to the scene. But uh, it, it, it was such an exciting moment for us to be able to take something like that and really sort of, again, sort of create one of those big Hollywood dance sequences. Yeah. Uh, Mia in that sequence, first off, that's iconic, that whole sequence, but the myriad dynamics like psychologically that she's expressing through that sequence is just fascinating to me. <laughs> awesome. She's playful, funny, dark, demented, and extremely ravenous. One of the last cues we've going to the scarecrow scene, Tim, one of the last cues we did, we you you had a great cue for her dancing with the scarecrow. And one of the last ideas was Wee Wee Marie, which obviously plays a big part in X that Chelsea did a cover of and then plays in the theater in Pearl. I remember texting you, Tyler, and being like, if it doesn't work, it's okay, but can you take one more stab at it trying to work a sort of waltzy version of Wee Wee Marie in there? And whether or not people get that or not when they see it, I, do, I mean, some people will, but even for the very few, there was something really great about that. And then it ended up working because what we had was really good. And it was like, I was like, let's not, you know, tip anything over like this. Just try it, rough it in. If it's not good, we'll just bail. But it, um, it ended up being really great and it adds a whole other layer. Yeah, it's a great Easter egg, isn't it? And a great sort of connector to the whole, you know, both what she's seen and, and of course, X. So it was, a, it was a great call, a really good idea. You always have a point behind why you want to explore a different idea if we want to check it out. So even though it's a lot of work to shift gears, it's always 
interesting and exciting too to see if we can land that plane. I think that sequence is classic, you know, for sh- uh, it's very, very enjoyable too. When you watch, it's a lot of fun. I think that this movie will will be a fun experience for people much more than they may anticipate going in. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I've noticed through the years is your sense of humor in your writing. And I don't know how conscious you are about it, but you certainly have never asked called upon me or music to double down on any levity or humor that you're, you want the audience to experience. And uh, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on the inclusion or integration of that into your writing. I don't know if I consciously think about it that much. It's sort of, I'm always just trying to think of like what scene is making sense for the character in the movie. And then what also is like sort of interesting and entertaining for the storytelling, but I'm never really setting out to make something funny. I think my taste is like, well, this is kind of a morbid idea, but also kind of amusing at the same time. And I think that those, they start to stack up. And um, I suppose, you know, it's the kind of movie that some people could watch and think this is movie is really funny and a blast. And then someone else could watch and be like, I'm just offended that anyone could find that funny. <laughs> I think a lot of it with this movie too, is just like a full commitment to what we were doing. And, you know, Pearl is a, is a, a pretty unstable character, but to put the audience in her shoes and fully commit is like, well, you're going to go along that unstable ride and you're going to see the ups and downs of it. And, you know, there's going to be some irony to that. And there's going to be some hypocritical natures to that. And there's going to be just some, some black humor to that. Obviously the day-to-day life that Pearl is living with her family is pretty grim. So every time I've seen the movie, whether it was in the dub or at a screening, people are getting it every time those moments come up and and it allows us to sort of reset, exhale, breathe, and get ready for the next beat of the story. And I think that that's part of why there's so much energy coming from the audience when they see this, because they are allowed to breathe. And then you build that tension up again. And this is a real ride. I mean, X is a ride too, but this is just such a different type of story because it's a period piece and, and um, it's very intimate. I just feel like it's one of the the best movies I've ever been a part of. And I, you know, not all the movies I've done have been good, but there've been some really good ones in there. And um, it just makes me so uh, excited and proud to be part of it. Uh, but yeah, the humor to me is cool because I've literally been emailed seventh chords by people working on a movie and say, hit this chord at that reveal. And it's like, really? Um, that's not going to make it funny. And literally staying out of the way of what is, is proven time and again, just in these two films, which is great. I hope that people really pay attention to that, especially people working on movies, you know, to see how effective it is to allow the story just to do its job, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of us having to, you know, double down on what we're already seeing or hearing or feeling. So, so what did you think about the, the initial poster that a 24 came out with? Cause to me that, like sold the movie already. <laughs> it's, it's the best poster I've ever had for a movie. I mean, it was like right out of the gate, nailed it. It's it's such a, it's an iconic poster. And it just is an art piece. It's just, would it's so like great to have on the wall. I'll be getting some of them in the mail this week, they said. So I'll be sending them over to you guys soon. Oh, thank you. Yes, that'd be great. Yeah, and Tim, I think you did a, an amazing job with the orchestrations because we did have some limitations as to what we were able to accomplish in such a short period of time with the orchestra. I think... That's part of why the score sounds so expensive is uh, how well it's orchestrated, because it's a pretty tall task to knock that out in a couple of days where they don't typically play that style of music either. Yeah, well, I remember even just the day one when we were recording with the orchestra, 
you know, just because of the style, that old style, there's this sort of technique called portamento where you kind of join the note. They, you hear it all the time. They kind of go, dayam, dayam, you know, they just slide between the notes. And of course, we had some younger players who were sitting there thinking this was kind of a very slow connect. So they were sort of going, which is not the style at all. So that was a challenge because because we had uh, written it with a intention of that old playability that was just it was a style that everyone just played in back then and it's kind of been lost so um it took it definitely took a session or two working with the orchestra to, to get them to kind of get that sound in their head uh, by day two they'd gotten it but just because it was su it's such a different sounding score than what they're used to it did take a while to get their get their minds into that headspace yeah i was just about to stab my eye with a pair of scissors <laughs> and then i heard it i'm like oh my god okay here it is well, the other thing that was that was fun for us was the ability just color wise to use woodwinds again woodwinds are so neglected and just you know the moment you jump onto a score the first thing that you often hear is we don't want any woodwinds you know they they, they sound too old-fashioned and for me you know, like the old John Williams scores and all these scores, you know, have this wonderful color of these woodwinds. And especially for this type of score where you have like contrabass clarinet, bass clarinet, all these kind of low, dark woodwinds that just kind of can create this really interesting color down there that you don't hear. For us as composers, that's something that is exciting when you get to use an unusual lineup. You get to use instruments you don't normally, you know, use on, on typical projects. For me, that was the, the woodwinds were even from our initial conversations. I was I, there was clarinets and you know we, I was like oboes, get out of everything that no one's using that right. everyone used a long time ago because it, it has such a distinct sound and it has such a distinctly cinematic sound when it works. If it doesn't work, it can be very out of place. But when it works and when it's matching the picture in a way, it's um, there's I mean some of my favorite moments of the movies are maybe just the theme coming back in a very small way and just being like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's like. Those little moments, they they really just sort of jump off the screen because of that. Because it's you're getting that melody and you're getting it from an instrument that has a very particular sound that you that you very rarely hear distinctly anymore. And so that was really fun for me. And we were also fortunate. We um, Karen Baker Landers, our sound designer, and Peter Stalby, our mixer, they were very invested in the score. They really loved it. So when we were mixing, I mean, we were able to spend a really a lot of time and care to make sure that things weren't rubbing with the sound design and make sure that, you know, two things weren't landing on each other that were making stuff wub out too much with some of the horns and things like that. We were able to really, I think, spend time in the mix EQing and, and play going, oh, you know, the, ver the verb on top of this verb is doing something weird. And we don't want that because we don't, in many ways, you really notice the score in this movie, but you also don't notice at the same time. It's a very fine line of like, you can't leave this movie without thinking about the score, but you also very quickly in the movie stop thinking about it because it's such a part of the movie that anytime anything rubbed or bumped in a weird way or didn't ebb and flow into a scene or the fade out just needed another 12 frames because you could hear a dip off of a string. Or something. We were, you know, we were really particular about that and really took a lot of care to make sure that the music would sneak in and sneak out in a way that you never thought it ever ended. Your team is, is fantastic because, uh, everything is just always balanced and you know sometimes you bring the music really to the front in a way that you often don't get in films and then at other times it's just beautifully just supporting and tucked back and uh that's that's a that's a whole nother craft and um this this sound mix was exceptional i know Ty, Ty, tyler oh. share you know how important that final sound mix is in because because we can write you know whatever the best music ever is but if you don't hear it 
you know. Yeah, and, and it was great because they were very good about, you know what, our, our cricket ambience is doing something weird with this, so we need to kill that. And they were never precious about being like, well, we need to hear. They were like, no, it's, it's rubbing against the violins and it's making some weird like feedback situation that you, if you play them individually, you don't hear it, but if you play it all together, and we just have to, we got to kill the crickets. We got to kill that wind because the wind is making it sound like there's a static and something else and it's modernizing it. And they had just such great ears. And, and that was most of our time in the mix was really trying to make sure everything felt clear and separated and that the music was, would be in the surrounds and the dialogue was up front and then they would trade places and things like that. And, you know, that's one of those things that also people take for granted at how um, idiosyncratic and, and esoteric those decisions are to get just right and to, and to go, you know, those horns sound great, but they're rubbing against the explosion in a way that's making like all the subwoofers do something. We got to pull it out of the sub. And we just took a lot of care to make sure that the, the score, you know, sat in the movie in like in the pocket, as they say. When I saw uh, the finished product for the first time, the score and all of the sound in the movie is so dynamic that you're never fatigued. I've done a number of movies that you can be fatigued because there's a lot of intense sounds. But the spirit of the collaboration that you're describing right now is really how classic films are made. And for the audience, you need different aspects of the movie to come to the forefront and then, you know, kind of hide a little bit throughout so that it's not just one constant uh, pounding. And I think if sound design and music and the director and the re-recording mixers are all on the same page as far as the storytelling. You end up with something classic. And this movie, to me, is a modern classic immediately. I think when people see this, they're going to feel that this movie will hold its weight forever. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I think I am. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Ty West, Tyler Bates, and Tim Williams for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great written pieces at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.